0: Events. 1 Corinthians is where we will be. Chapter 7, verse 25. There's a, a board game we like to play at our house, and I say like to play as in we've used to play it a lot, but then it caused us to fight so much that we stopped playing it as much. It's called Settlers of Catan or Settlers of Catan, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And The way the game works is it's like Monopoly, except it has a point. You create this board, and, and the board has different resources on it, and you change the board with every game, and there's all sorts of different places, and Every time you roll a certain number, you get resources from that spot, and you just kind of build your hand, and then you build these cities or these settlements or these roads, and then once you get a certain amount of points, which each thing is worth, you win the game. But what makes this game so interesting and why it causes fights in our house is because you have to barter, haggle. And so you'll have some resources, and you'll, at the beginning of the game, everybody's pretty kind and, and, and pretty cordial, but towards the end of the game, when somebody starts getting close to having a lot of points, the game switches there's a flip. I could almost tell you when it will happen. And all of a sudden, embargoes take place. Typically, if you play with me and you make me mad, I'll embargo you the whole game. I'll lose to not trade with you. Morgan uh, doesn't do that. She will not give up her turn until you trade with you. It's opposite strategies. We end up fighting in this game. We had to quit playing it so much because it would just bring out so much intense uh, emotions and things for us. But I was thinking about that game this morning, or not this morning, this week, when I was reading through this text and planning on on, on preaching it and seeing what, what God was doing here and what Paul was teaching us as we're walking through these things. And largely what Paul is going to tell us this morning as we walk through this text is that Jesus is coming back. And since Jesus is coming back, it affects the way that you and I live right now. And so the way he talks to the Corinthians, the way he talks to the church, is he's saying the end is coming, the end is near. There are things where Jesus is going to come back. And so since Jesus is coming back soon, you live a different way than if he wasn't. It's the end of the game. The rules are, are the same, but the way you play it shifts. Your priorities change. And so let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. We'll pray, and then we'll work through this, and I'll show you what what Paul is saying. Now, about virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is faithful because of the present distress. I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who weep as though they do not weep and those who rejoice as though they do not rejoice and those who buy as though they didn't own anything and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it for the world in its current form is passing away. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I'm saying this for you, uh, for your benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If any man thinks he is acting properly towards a virgin he is engaged to, if she is beginning on the usual age for marriage, and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning. They can get married. But he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and has decided to keep his heart, to keep her as his fiancée will do well, So then, he who marries his fiancée does well, but he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, and if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think that I have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture with all of these various things that can kind of catch us off guard and feel like they're not what the rest of your Word says, I pray that you would help us to understand, God, that this is the same Bible. That the same God that that, uh, inspired 1 Corinthians, that, that had Paul write 1 Corinthians, God, that you're the same God who wrote Romans. That all of the Bible is telling one story, that the Old Testament and the New Testament, God, is your word to us, revealing yourself to us, which we have to have, which we need to know you. So as we look at this passage of scripture and we see how that plays out and how that applies in regards to marriage and in regards to just life in general, I pray that you'd help us to realize that your word is true, that your word is without error, that your word accomplishes what it says it accomplishes, and that your word is enough for us. Help us, grow us, encourage us where we need encouragement, convict us where we need conviction, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians, uh, let's read chapter 25 through 28 again. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful because of the present distress. I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. We dive into this text, and it may sound a little odd because there's some things here that are interesting, things that we have to think about, things that we need to understand why they're in here. And it starts off with Paul saying this odd statement at the very top. I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion. We have to wrestle with that statement for a second. Is Paul saying that this is not the Word of God? Is Paul saying, I I have no command from the Lord, This is just my opinion, and Paul kind of pinned that into the text, and somehow over church history it made it here. Or is there something else that's going on within the text of Scripture? This is an argument that is important. How we come to a conclusion on this matters for how we view the entirety of the Scriptures, and how we view Scriptures impacts how we live our lives out. So let me just walk you through briefly what Paul is saying, what Paul isn't saying, so that we can know with confidence what the Word of the Lord is. This is the nature of Scripture. And we see Paul at the very end say this too. If you you jump down to to verse 40, Paul finishes with, and, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. That's tying into all of this together. So the nature of Scripture is that it is, first off, necessary for you and I. God has given us two types of revelation. We have general revelation or natural revelation, which is where we can look out at the environment, we can look at the world, we can see a sunset, we can see mountains, we can see an ocean, we can see the dirt blowing down the plains, and know that there is a God. That there's something beyond us, someone greater than us, something that has created all of these things. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 1. But natural revelation, general revelation, is not enough for you and I to know how we can be saved, how we can be reconciled with that God, who that God is. We need a special revelation, which is what God has given us in his word. That he doesn't reveal everything about life in here. This isn't going to tell you how to program your iPhone or your VCR if you're still using those. But it tells you everything that you need to know how to believe in God, to know who the God of the Bible is. And it also sets up for us what's called a biblical worldview, where we're going to have things that happen in our life that the Bible doesn't explicitly address. But it gives us principles, it gives us values, it gives us morals, all based upon God, based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we can then view the world through. It's a biblical worldview. It's necessary for you and I. So scripture is necessary. It's authoritative. All of scripture is authoritative. The Old Testament is just as much the word of God as the New Testament is. The black letters are just as much the word of God as the red letters are. It's all breathed out by God, inspired by God. Not inspired as like, I heard that song and it was inspirational, it made me cry and weep. No, no, inspired by God is in God the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author of all of the scriptures. Now there's segments, right? We know in the Old Testament they're looking forward to the Messiah coming. We know in the New Testament they're looking back at what Jesus did. And so there's some progression that takes place there that, that illuminates this, that teaches us how to read God's word better. But it is all God's authority. And so it's authoritative over all of our life. So it's it's necessary. It's authoritative. It is inerrant, meaning without error in the originals. We don't believe there's mistakes in the Bible. Now people will push you on that one. They'll argue with you on that one. They'll bring up these these little things with that one. Any uh, uh, mistake is a perceived error. It's not truth. We believe that it's inerrant in the originals. We believe that it's infallible, meaning it does not fail. It accomplishes exactly what God wants it to accomplish. It's His Word. And it is sufficient. It's enough. That whatever problems you and I have, whatever struggles you and I have, whatever sins you and I are dealing with, whether they're sins we do or sins done to us, the Bible is enough. We don't need extra things. What we need to do is understand the Word of God, have that biblical worldview set up for a lot of these things, and know it's sufficient. It does us no good to say the Bible is necessary, the Bible is authoritative, the Bible is inerrant, the Bible is infallible if we don't also believe it's sufficient, that it's enough. We turn to Scripture. We're people of the book. So then what do we do when Paul says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give an opinion? What we do is we understand what Paul's talking about. If we read that as Paul's saying, this is not from the Lord, this is my opinion, we're not reading what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is if you read the Gospels, if you follow Jesus, Jesus did not address the topics that Paul's about to address. Singleness. Jesus doesn't talk about it. He talks about marriage, but he doesn't talk about singleness. So what Paul is saying is he's like, I have no command from the Lord. Jesus didn't teach about these things in his gospel. So these are, uh, he says, but I do give an opinion, and an opinion for Paul is not an opinion like my opinion that the uh, gravy casserole is better than the other casseroles at the men's breakfast. That opinion is true, but I can understand where if you have like an allergic reaction to gravy, you may disagree with my opinion, and I would go with you there. Every other person needs to repent. That's not the idea Paul's saying here with opinion. Some translations will say judgment. It's Paul's statement. And what's interesting when we read the New Testament and you start looking at how people were looking at the New Testament scriptures, they were viewing what we have as the New Testament as the word of God. Look at what Paul says about himself at verse 40. I have the spirit of God. Meaning that these are the inspired words of God, and Paul recognized that. So his opinion, his judgment, is not Paul saying, "Man, you can do whatever you want, this is kind of what I think. This is Paul saying, no, these are to be obeyed because they are the word of God. Because God is merciful, and God is faithful. And so he's talking about, he uses the word virgin here, but really this is just talking about an unmarried woman what do they do? And and Paul's just come off the heels of talking about marriage. He's come off the heels of talking about all sorts of things that are taking place. Lawsuits among believers was one of them. He's talked a little bit about unmarriage already. He's talked about church discipline with sexual immorality that was going on within the church. He's talking about church unity. That's the whole overarching theme here. Paul's trying to sort out this church at Corinth that he loves, but it's a tough love right now. You need to be unified. You need to grow in these things. And so Paul's now talking about this group of people probably from the second the letter they wrote to Paul asking questions is probably where Paul's getting these things that he's working through, right? He says now about virgins, meaning they probably wrote something and now he's addressing it. He's not undermining God's word. He is elevating his authority. He says because of this present distress. Now it's debated on what Paul means here. There's some people who think there was a famine that was taking place, and that's what Paul's talking about. Is he's talking about that present distress? But I, I studying it, I, I think there's a better interpretation for this. I think Paul's talking about looking ahead to the second coming of Christ, because he says in in verse 29, time is limited, and there's there's been these passing little glances that Paul has thrown in First Corinthians where this is something that's on the forefront of his mind for this church in particular. That Jesus is coming back. And so he calls this time that they're living in, this present distress. And and you and I are living in a similar time because Jesus has not come back yet. And so Paul's command to these people, Paul's uh, thinking with these people is interesting for us. He says, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek to be bound is Paul picking up on the same themes that he just talked about previously. Remain in the situation in which you are called. Paul said that three times from verse 17 to verse 24. And now Paul's applying that directly to those who are not married. What he's saying is there's this present distress, right? This time that we're in. There's hardship. There's things taking place. Jesus is coming back. Recognize that Jesus is coming back and understand where your role's at. This is not Paul saying, don't get married ever, period. I've not seen many people who put uh, these passages on their walls. What Paul is saying is he's saying marriage is temporary. It's for this life. Singleness is temporary. It's for this life. That when Jesus comes back, that matters that our relationship with Jesus Christ is more important than both of those other relationships. Paul says, if you get married, you've not sinned. It's not a sin to be married. Praise the Lord. It's not a sin to stay single. Praise the Lord. I think there is this understanding we have to have, right? Paul says, such people who are married will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. That's the verse I don't imagine many people have up on their wall. That's not what Paul... He's not saying different things in different places. See, Look, look what he says in, in verse 20, 29. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none and those who weep as though they did not weep and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice and those who buy as though they didn't own anything and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it for the world and its current form is passing away. That everything in our life, how we live in our life should be recalibrated, should be considered in light of this imminent end that is coming, that Jesus is coming back. I mean, Paul says, in other places, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Yet here, what we see Paul saying is, don't weep as <laughs> those who weep, they, as though they do not weep, and those who rejoice as though they do not rejoice. He's not saying two different things. He's talking about the specific idea that Jesus is coming back that don't let your life be so wrapped up in temporal things and things of this world and things that are fading away and things that will not last for an eternity that look ahead to that Jesus is coming back and let that guide the decisions that we make right now. Because time is limited. Paul is saying is there something that's happened in the past that is affecting our present right now that time is limited that Jesus has promised that he died on the cross and he said I'm coming back again past and now that is implement that is impacting how we live our lives out right now trusting that in the future Jesus will come back and we're not promised to know when we don't know when but we can be certain that it will come true The world in its current form is passing away. The Bible is one story. It's telling one thing. This passage is interesting because it sure feels like it's contradicting other places in the Scripture. We have to understand the context that Paul is speaking at to understand what he is saying. We can look at Ephesians 5.33, which says this. Uh, to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. If we just read what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, it sure feels like Paul is like, I really wish you wouldn't have gotten married, but if you did get married, I guess that's fine, but you really should probably be single. That's what it can feel like in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but then we know Paul wrote Ephesians too, and Paul is saying, Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Wives, respect your husbands, love your husbands, care for them, grow them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth and he's saying two different things or are we missing what is happening here? It's one story. He's not saying something different. He's just hitting a different point. Jesus is coming back and that is an eternal reality. And eternity is a long time. There's only one. And it does not end a little longer than my longest sermon. That one wasn't supposed to get that much of a response. So whatever you and I put our hope in, whatever we put our joy in, whatever causes us to weep, whatever causes us to rejoice, the things that we buy, Paul specifically talks about cannot be our ultimate hope. There's something beyond us. There's something greater. I mean, we can think about those who weep as though they do not weep. And and you and I in this life are going to go through hard things. We will go through suffering. There will be times when we weep will be times when our hearts shatter. There will be times when we don't understand why things are the way that they are, and it just breaks us, and it shatters us, and we find us in the depths of darkness. The Psalms talk an awful lot about those times. There's a whole book called Lamentations that I've preached through, which is just a whole book of people lamenting that there are hard times. The Bible doesn't skirt around those things. It addresses them directly, and it addresses them truly, but when we understand that Jesus Christ is coming back, that we can understand that our suffering in light of eternity is pale. And we can have real and true suffering, things that that cause us heartbreak, things that cause us to weep, the worst things that you can imagine. But if we zoom out and realize that in 10,000 years we'll still have an eternity to go with Christ, then that suffering is minute compared to the eternity that Jesus brings. So we don't weep like other people weep if we're believers. Because we know that our weeping is not eternal. We don't rejoice like those who rejoice if we're believers. No, there's things that we can be joyful for. There's things that we can celebrate. But all that takes place in the context of understanding that Jesus is eternal. And so there's those good things we can celebrate. We can root for Ira that we will beat whatever team we're playing, and we can rejoice when we win those games. But that's not an eternal reality that we're going to carry with us for the next 10,000 years. I can't imagine you and I will sit in heaven and just go man can't believe we lost that game there's greater things to rejoice in. Paul talks about this frequently in his writings that you and I are stewards of what we have it's not ours to own those who buy as though they didn't own anything This isn't a struggle within America, is it? Advertisers aren't making billions and billions of dollars on trying to make people feel like their worth and their value is in what they wear and what they own. That's sarcasm. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. It's exactly what's going on. If you don't own the right shoes, if you don't own the right clothes, if you don't buy the right things, if you don't drink the right things, if you don't support the right things or whatever, then you're somehow less or you feel somehow devalued. And what Paul is saying, in light of eternity... That's nothing. Because those who use the world as though they don't make full use of it. This world is passing away. Our hope is not tethered to this. It's tethered to a resurrected Savior who promises to come back. My dad passed away when I was young. And he was not a handyman by any stretch of the imagination. I inherited that from him. But he found out he had cancer, and for us it was a blessing, because what it meant was he knew that he was dying. And so it meant that he could prepare for my brother and I all of these things that he wasn't going to be able to teach us. So I have like a book that he wrote in, and then he made this box that I was supposed to open on my 18th birthday that has all of these things in this box. And so my dad died in the year 2000. I turned 18. 2008 so there's almost like a 10 year gap or so there I don't know the math is a little fuzzy on that but it's fine so when I go to open the box I unscrew it it was screwed together and again not great I open it up and I dump it out and there's all sorts of things in there it's like a time capsule almost and it was just funny thinking about the things that we buy trying to add worth and value to our life because my dad bought these things hoping that in 10 years they would be worth something for me It was 2008. Gas prices were high then. I remember a line at the gas station. There was a $5 bill that said go fill the pickup up and just drive around. It got a gallon of gas. There was a Sammy Sosa rookie card. In 2000, big deal. In 2008, less of a big deal. Our life is filled with those types of things. These possessions that we think if I get them now, if I can hold on to them now, that they're going to add worth, that they're going to add value, that they're going to add substance, that they're going to make me feel the way I want to feel. And in the end, in 10 years, they're worthless. What Paul is saying is the time is drawing near. It's limited. Don't worry about that stuff. Look ahead to the eternal things that we have to Jesus. Verse 32. I want you to be without concerns. The married man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman or the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so that she may be holy in both body and spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And I am saying this for your benefit, not to put restraint on you, but to promote what is proper, so that you also may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Paul is saying, and Paul is saying this as an unmarried man. That there's opportunities that present itself if you're not married that don't present itself if you are married. And and vice versa, there's opportunities that are presented to you if you are married that don't present if you're not married. But Paul argues it's easier to live with the understanding that Jesus is coming back if you're not married because you don't have a spouse right there that you're supposed to take care of. what he's saying when he's saying is uh the the married man is concerned about the things of the world how he may please his wife we might read that as a negative thing you're just concerned about the world how you're going to take care of your wife i'm concerned about jesus that's not what paul's saying it's not a a bad way to please your wife paul says in ephesians chapter 5 there's a whole section there talking about marriage where paul's talking about how a husband is supposed to love his wife it's sacrificially to death sanctifying her in the word of god He's not speaking out of both ends of his mouth. He's not writing two different letters. It's not like one is not inspired by the, the Lord. Both of these are inspired by God. Both of them are the Word of God. Both of them are authoritative in our life. We just have to understand what Paul is actually saying and not read our own interpretations into Scripture. Paul is saying is, and, and we do this a lot and I haven't talked about it in a while so I'm going to bring it back up in, in our minds, and in our lives typically how we approach our life is this hierarchical system. We're going to come up with a checklist of the things that we're going to value. So number one, we're going to put God on number one. Number two will probably be our spouse or our family. Number three will be whichever one we didn't put at number two. And then number four will be something of, of lesser value. For me it's oatmeal cream pies. The problem with that is even if God is number one, he does not own everything if he's number one. If God's number one and then your, your wife or your family is number two, it's not 100%. Instead, the way Paul talks, the way Scripture talks, is not to think of our lives as in these systems where this is what I value and then kind of work our way down, but rather think of our lives in this way, that if we are believers in Jesus Christ, if we have been saved by the Lord, central to our life is the gospel, is the good news of Jesus, is God. He is the controlling factor in our lives, and everything else that we do flows from that. It's not God's number one, and then I have this different category for my family and for my kids. No, it's the Lord is the center of our life, and because I'm a Christian, I'm going to be a godly husband or I'm going to be a godly father because of what Christ has done for me. That the Lord infiltrates all aspects of our life. It infiltrates all the areas of our lives. That our entire life has been captivated by Christ. It's central to who we are. When the Bible speaks of salvation, it doesn't speak of it starting outside and then working its way in. It starts as it working inside and then fleshing itself outward. It's core to who we are. God is far more than number one. He is the only one. Everything else has to flow from that reality. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's issuing warnings. He's saying if you're single... You can be concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But if you're married, you have to worry. You have to take care of your wife, your spouse. Those are realities that we face. We know that Christ is coming back, that that second coming is imminent, that the time is near. And wives, Paul says the same thing here the unmarried or to the, the virgin it's like engaged it's it's concerned more about the things of the lord so that she may be holy both in body and spirit but the married woman is concerned about the things of the world how she may please her husband like those are truths we should be doing those things we should be growing our marriages in christ jesus we should be holding to those things seeking after christ together but your marriage is not as important as your relationship with jesus if you keep your marriage but you lose Christ, you lose everything. Now the Bible teaches if you keep your if you cling to Christ and then that comes into your marriage, your marriage is going to be far better off. That's what Paul's getting at. And if we're not careful, we read these things and they can feel like handcuffs. They can feel like restraints. It can feel like Paul is just boxing us into these ideas that you have to do all of these things that he's just squishing us and compressing us in. But look at what Paul says in, in, in verse 35. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to put a restraint on you, not to snare you, not to tether you down, not to hold you in, but to promote what is proper so that you can be devoted to the Lord without distraction. The reality of this gospel is the reality of the truth is we have these commands from God. We have this gospel and what it does is It frees us to obey God. We won't obey God without Jesus Christ. We won't obey God without the gospel. What the gospel does is it frees us. It unthrows those restraints off so that we can fully obey. We can obey God because of Jesus Christ's obedience. We we have the righteousness of God imputed to us. That He's taken our punishment. That He's taken our our sin, and now we can live out that truth with God. It's not a restraint. It's freedom. This is on Paul's mind because he's talk next week he'll talk about food offered to idols. And he's going to talk about Christian liberty and what that is and what that isn't. What Paul's saying is if you're the world's greatest husband, if you're the world's greatest wife, and you have the mug to prove it. But you fail to seek God. Ultimately, you fail. That if you're the world's greatest father, or the world's greatest mother, and you get that mug to prove it, but you fail to seek God, you fail. You can go, we can go on the list of you. If you are the world's greatest employee or employer, but you fail to seek God, you ultimately fail. That's what Paul's saying is that in the gospel it can feel like there's restraints, but in reality what God is doing is He is freeing you to seek Him. He's freeing you to obey Him. Verse 36. If any man thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, and she is if she is getting beyond the usual age for marriage, and he feels he should marry, he can do what he wants. He is not sinning; they can get married, but he who stands firm in his heart, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his will, and has decided in his heart to keep her as his fiance will do well so then he who marries his fiance does well, and he who does not marry will do better. A wife is bound to her husband uh, is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married if uh, to anyone she wants, only in the Lord, but she is happier if she remains as she is in my opinion, and I think that I also have. The Spirit of God. Context matters when we get to these passages. See, Paul's saying here if if your uh, husband dies, right, not by murder, ladies, but if he dies, you're free to marry. And he, he throws in this qualifier, right, in the Lord. So, not just anybody. He says, You can marry anybody in the Lord. You marry another believer, another Christian. That's a, a value we should teach our kids and something we should hold to. You marry Christians. You date Christians. You don't date people who are not believers in Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, if you're a Christian and Christ controls your life as He is supposed to and you date somebody who is not a believer, not a Christian, your values and your morals may look the same on paper, but your motivation is very different and it will end badly. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. Jordan Ladies, you're not the Holy Spirit. You cannot save an unbelieving spouse. That's what Paul's saying, right? He, he says that, but, but then in 1 Timothy 5, 14, right, he, he says here, like, you should in, remain unmarried. That's his kind of hint, like, remain unmarried. If you're going to marry, do this, but you should remain unmarried. But in 1 Timothy 5, 14, Paul counsels widows to marry, to have kids. just Paul speaking out of both ends of his mouth is he saying two different things no he's talking to the corinthian context he's telling them in this specific church the things that you should do are this that he knows they're widows he knows the people who are here he knows what they struggle with and he knows that they're not looking towards the coming of jesus christ and the eternity that will come with that he's trying to get them to look to the eternal in verse 36, he's probably talking about an engaged couple. And so I think he thinks when he's he's writing these things that people are going to read it and they're going to be like, all right, well, let's just go single and let's not get married. And that's what he's after. That's not what he's after. He's saying it's not a sin to get married. It's not a sin to stay single. Those things are not issues of morality. Those things are issues of calling, of gifting that for some people God has has called to be single, that he has gifted you uniquely for that purpose. And we praise God for those kinds of people. Jesus, the Apostle Paul, were both singles and pretty instrumental in the New Testament church. Yet for most, the calling is marriage. That's what uh, what, what, what God says in Genesis chapter 2. But that our marriages glorify God. That our marriages encourage us in holiness. That our marriages grow us in Jesus Christ. And then Paul finishes. He says, and I think that I also have the spirit of God. Which to me is just fascinating. That Paul's writing this letter to the church at Corinth. And what he recognizes is God is using him for something more than just that. That all of scripture is inspired by God. That all of scripture including these writings are meant to be authoritative they're meant to be seen as the word of God So, how do we apply this how do we look at this in our life we must understand something that we so quickly and easily forget the end is near I don't want to sound like the guy with like the poster board outside of Walmart that's like the end is coming tomorrow and then he always has the sign because tomorrow never comes We do know that Christ is coming back again. We do not know when. We know that it is imminent. We know that it is a certainty that God's word is infallible. And what God says in his word will come true. That it's inerrant. That it's without error. That it's authoritative in our life. And that it's sufficient. Which means when Jesus says, I'm coming back, he means it. And so if Christ is coming back, then you and I make decisions understanding that the end is at hand. We're at the end of the board game. We're not at the beginning. That We make different decisions. That We understand that it is a, a lie, that it is a sin to place our joy, to place our significance, to place our value, to place our worth, to place our decision making in things that are temporary and passing away. That's that's like the guy who puts his worth in his, like he peaks in high school and he wears his letterman jacket at his 40-year anniversary. That's not what Scripture calls us to do. It's not a sin to be single. It's not a sin to be married, but what is a sin is to make an idol of singleness and to make an idol of marriage. Both of those are false gods that will let you down. Both of those can't provide you the worth. They can't provide you the things that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can. How many people think that all they need in life is just to be single and that will give them everything that they need, and they end up falling flat because it doesn't give them what they want? How many people have leaned in their spouse, tried to have their spouse be their savior, and their spouse is not their savior and fails them? This wreaks havoc across Scurry County. We glorify God now in the circumstances that God has placed us in now. Understanding that Christ is coming back soon. And so we look at those relationships. We look at those things that are close to us. We look at what we're doing and we live in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That eternity is a long, long time and we don't know when it starts. That you and I are not guaranteed tomorrow. That you and I may walk out the door and boom, Jesus shows up. We may walk out the door and it's not Jesus that shows up but the Lord takes our life and we die. We're not promised another breath. We're not promised another moment. What we're promised is a God who will take us past those things. So wherever God has placed you, it's not an accident. In your work, it's not an accident. In your school, it's not an accident. Your spouse is not an accident that God has given you those people, that God has given you those circumstances to glorify him and to make much of Jesus Christ. God frees you to obey and to live a life that matters because of the gospel. That Jesus took our place, that he did the work. We just live in light of that until Christ calls us home, whatever that looks like. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you that we do get to gather together, that we can hear your word, that we can proclaim your word, God, that we can sing your word, that we can take the Lord's Supper and be reminded, God, that all of our worth, all of our value, all of who we are, God, the very core of everything that we find hope in, everything that we find peace in, everything that we find encouragement in, everything that we rejoice in, God, is centered on your life, your death, and your resurrection and ascension. God, help us to live in light of eternity, to recognize that you are coming back and that the things of this world are fading and are temporary. Help us to use our time that we have diligently and faithfully. We only have the minutes that you've given us, and we don't know how many minutes there are. Help us to make the most of them for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.